0: Three years ago, ethanol as an alternative fuel was all the rage. Now it is not. Let's get to the bottom of what happened. This is AutoLine. A few years back, ethanol looked like it was going to emerge as a significant alternative fuel for us to turn to. But then all kinds of accusations came out that ethanol was driving up food prices, was using too much water, and would lead to mass starvation in developing countries. You don't hear a whole lot about ethanol in the media these days, and yet ethanol production in the United States is booming. And what about cellulosic ethanol made from switchgrass or garbage, whatever became of that? Well, to get to the bottom of these issues, my guest today is Professor Bruce Dale from Michigan State University, who's an expert on ethanol. And joining me on my journalist panel are Tim Higgins from the Detroit Free Press and James Amen from wardsauto.com. We'll be back to dive into this ethanol issue right after this.
1: From our studios in the Motor City, this is AutoLine. Here now is John McElroy.
0: Welcome to this episode of AutoLine Detroit, where we're going to be talking all about ethanol and probably some other biofuels, too, with Professor Bruce Dale from Michigan State University, an expert in these matters, and great having you back on AutoLine.
2: Thank you. Appreciate the
0: invitation. Also joining us this morning is Tim Higgins from the Detroit Free Press and James Amon from wardsauto.com. Great having you guys here, too. Thank you. Well, Professor Deal, let's start out by going back about two or three years ago when you were last on the show and everybody was talking about ethanol and E85 and especially how cellulosic ethanol was going to be here in a few years' time. So here we are in a few years' time. <laughs> Where's the
2: cellulosic ethanol? It's coming, but not in a few years. (laughs) We're building something like eight plants around the country. Right now? For cellulosic? mm -hmm.
0: Are these little itty bitty pilot ones or
2: pretty good size? 20 to 40 million gallons a year, the size. So they're they're not as big as they will be ultimately, but they're not uh, itty bitty pilot plant size either, including one in the Upper Peninsula. Of Michigan. Yes. All right, Michigan's in there. That's good to hear. So when will this stuff start to
0: become available?
2: Well, a lot of it depends on uh, how soon the the financing uh, sorts itself out. Right now, because of what they call the blend wall, that's the inability to blend, just legal inability to blend more than 10% ethanol and gasoline, nobody will lend money for either a corn ethanol or cellulosic ethanol plant because we're almost at that 10% of the gasoline pool now. We have almost 10 billion gallons of corn ethanol being made now. So we have enough. So who's going to invest to make even more is what you're saying. Well, uh, legally, they can't even sell it. Because the, the, there's a, just a, a law, it's not based on anything particularly technical, can't blend more than 10% ethanol and gasoline, we're already there.
0: Because the car companies would have to go in and start making modifications to their cars to be able to take it up higher than that, right?
2: Well, that, that's right, but the car companies to a large extent have done that. This blend wall is more an issue of infrastructure, our ability to move ethanol around to where it's needed, and, and some more vehicles, but it's, a lot of it's pipelines, a lot of it's gasoline, dispensing stations, and so forth.
0: Well, how much could cars take right now? I mean, certainly there's flex fuel cars which can take E85, 85 percent ethanol. But if you don't get a flex fuel car, how much could a car take before you'd start
2: to damage it? Well, that's that's part of the argument. Nobody really knows. Uh, But we've been able to put at least 10 percent in vehicles for a long time. We've had that for 20 or 30 years. In fact,
0: we really need it, right? You cannot get gasoline to meet the standards for the Clean Air Act unless it's got ethanol in it because it burns so clean, or more cleanly than gasoline, certainly.
2: Yep, that's right.
1: Well, you mentioned those, Bruce, you mentioned those, the, uh, the, uh, the demonstration facility, I think, that Mascome is gonna build in, K- in Kinross, Michigan, right. in the UP. And I think Coscata has a facility that they're going to open next week in, uh, in Madison, Pennsylvania but beyond that there's there 's really not much for people to look at that that that, that shows that the that the uh, cellulosic uh, ethanol industry is is making significant progress to a full scale facility um, what, what leads us to believe that this is going to uh, well,
2: go anywhere well there 's a half a dozen other places that are doing something similar to Ken Ross and to the the Madison facility k l energy uh, a smaller they, they make a couple of gallons a million gallons a year a pop in their their approach but uh company called Range Fuels, another company called Verenium, are building similar facilities around the country, different parts of the country, different technologies, different raw materials. And in total, that, that amount of uh, cellulosic ethanol, when that comes on stream, is about 200 million gallons. It's not, in, it's not inconsiderable. It's not to the billions of gallons we mm-hmm. need to go. But we have to do this to sort out the technologies, the logistics, and supply chain. So we can find out who and, or what are going to, the winners are going to be to invest in the next round, the really large-scale rollout of it.
1: What about, what about distribution? You mentioned a pipeline. It's hard to imagine these massive pipelines uh, uh, going all over the country. Uh, what sort of distribution uh, network are we going to look at? Well, right now it's being distributed
2: through rail car mostly, mm-hmm. and that's, that's working all right. It's not as cheap as you'd like it, but it works just fine. I mean, it gets it there. It costs a couple of cents, three cents more, maybe more a gallon than a pipeline.
1: And I've, I've heard, but I've also heard that the, the idea is not to move it around too much, but it's to take advantage of the certain um, resources that are available in different regions of the country and use that place refineries strategically across the country. That's right, what's well, one of the big differences generally between biofuels uh, and
2: petroleum fuels? The bio resource, the plants, the trees, the grasses, the wood chips, the municipal waste are distributed around the, around the whole country. So the idea is to put the processing facilities much closer to the source of the raw material and therefore closer to the, uh, the markets. And, and that's, that's, uh, that's the philosophy of several of the places that are making this work, too. Because that's key to making it an affordable. Well, it's one of the keys. Uh, the, what we're, people are working on right now and why we're, we have these different technologies being tested is to try to drive down the cost of conversion, the, the processing cost. That's the dominant cost right mm-hmm. now. But if this takes the same road as other commodity, chemicals or fuels, eventually, and hopefully not very far from now, uh, the raw material, the feedstock cost becomes dominant. And then it's your access to feedstock and your logistics and and, uh, how cheaply you can get the raw material that will matter whether you're a winner or a loser. Mm -hmm. What's the cost of the cellulosic ethanol? Where where is it coming in at per gallon? Uh, Right now, the, the estimates are around $3 per gallon. So it's expensive. Yeah. And how does that compare to corn ethanol? Uh, corn ethanol, well, depends, for corn ethanol, it depends almost entirely on what the price of corn is. But corn at $3.5 a bushel, uh, corn ethanol is probably being made for a little under $2 a gallon. Okay, now when I talked to you three years ago, you, you thought that uh, cellulosic
0: ethanol in volume production could get down to maybe like 85 cents a gallon. That's
2: How, right. What's it going to take to get us there? Do you still hold to that number? Yeah, I do. Uh, In fact, I think it's more solid than ever, but it's gonna take several billion gallons worth of experience uh, to get there. This is the kind of what they call the classic S curve. As your experience accumulates, as you put out more and more volume units of production, the unit cost of production goes down. Brazil has shown this with sugarcane ethanol, and I'm sure we're gonna be on the same curve, same sort of curve with uh, cellulosic ethanol. But the first thing is to kind of winnow down the various alternatives for the processing approach. Uh, and it may be different processes for different raw materials. And then we really start driving down uh, the, the entire costs.
3: You know, a few years ago when ethanol was all the rage, gasoline prices were high. But since then, we have seen food prices increase. And in, in a lot of the folks in the food industry are trying to blame ethanol uh, for that food spike. Is, is, that, is that fair? Is that true? No, it's not fair. It
2: wasn't true then. It's not true now. You spend about $0.18 cents of your food dollar Every 18 cents or, or every dollar that a, cons- a consumer spends on food goes to the farmer. But a lot less than, than half of that 18 cents actually costs for the raw material, the corn or the, you know, whatever it is. So that was a very skillful campaign uh, by uh, the Grocery Manufacturers Association, and I'll name names here, uh, who um, knew that they were gonna have a, f- a spike in their food prices and wanted somebody else to blame it on. You'll notice the corn prices are down now from their seven dollars, seven fifty high, down about three fifty a bushel. Have you noticed food prices coming down? Okay, so if you can't blame ethanol for it, if you if it if you if the corn, food prices don't go down when corn prices go down, why can you blame them on the way up?
3: Right. Of course, it's that varying price of corn and gasoline that's making it difficult for uh, ethanol producers. We've seen quite a few bankruptcies in the last year, or that's, so contributing kind of a, the glut of ethanol in the marketplace.
2: Well, it's kind of like any industry, the, the efficient, the, uh, the smart operators, they tend to survive, and the ones that, that aren't quite so smart or so careful don't. Uh, some of the ethanol producers hedged their didn't hedge properly on their corn prices, and so they bought corn when it was really high, $7.50 a bushel, and they went bankrupt. And, uh, but those assets, that ethanol production facility, hasn't gone away. And for example, the, the country's largest independent oil refinery called Valero uh, bought up, I think it's seven of those corn ethanol plants, So, you know, we're going to be in the uh, ethanol business for ourselves. We might as well get these assets when they're cheap. So they, we're going to produce more corn ethanol than ever this year, over 10 billion gallons. And that's it, some of
3: the problem, right? The issue there's going to be too much in the marketplace. Well,
2: no, we have a 14, uh, 140 billion gallons of gasoline we have to replace. So we have room for a lot more ethanol. But the problem is this blend wall that I mentioned earlier. You can't, you're not allowed to blend more than 10% ethanol into gasoline. We have to fix that, that's the first problem, the most important pressing problem in the industry right now.
0: And that's just a legal issue that Congress is gonna weigh in on or the EPA? How's that going to
2: work? You know, I don't know the details of that probably like I should, but I think it's mostly an EPA issue, but obviously Congress is gonna get involved because Congress has said, you know, we're going to have 32 billion gallons of alternative fuels by 2022. And most of that's gonna be ethanol, frankly, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, but we can't even get, it's even difficult to get financing for new cellulosic ethanol because even if you made it, you couldn't sell it, right? There's no, there's no market for that fuel, so.
3: Now the automakers, however, would say that, that 250 million cars in the nationwide fleet, a good portion of those are old and, and haven't been uh, designed to handle e, E10 or e, anything beyond E10, the E15 that you're talking about, um, could lead to corrosive uh, events inside the uh, right. the powertrain. Uh, and they're unsure how that would affect the warranty costs going forward. Sure,
2: and, and they have they have every right to be concerned about that. Uh, but of course, we're adding more flex fuel vehicles all the time. We have we have to work on the fuel distribution infrastructure. We have to work on uh, on all aspects of this, and of course, uh, uh,
1: the ability to move the stuff, move the ethanol around. Mm-hmm. You mentioned distribution again. What can you give us an idea of what's happening with the uh, proliferation of of E85 pumps? across the U.S.? They seem to be sort of centered on the Midwest. Well, that's, that's, no, there's a reason for that. That's where the ethanol is right now.
2: And so we need uh, to be able to move the ethanol out of the Midwest where it's being made, more to the population centers in the, co- in, you know, in the coastal regions and around Chicago, and then put the pumps in also. And then a lot of people don't know that they have an E85, E85 vehicle. If you're driving, for instance, a late model Impala, you have, an, uh, you have a flex-fuel vehicle. Okay. But a lot of people don't even know that, and so they don't look for, for the ethanol even if they could find it. They don't, they don't even know they could, they could fill up with it.
3: So we have a long way to go. Of course, it's also hard to find an E85 pump in this country. There's, what, uh, you know, eight, 8 million flex-fuel vehicles in the marketplace, and uh, there's only maybe 2,000 places to get E85 in the right. country, where there's, what, 170,000 filling stations across the country. It's mean, just Outside the Midwest, it's hard to find an E85 pump. That's right.
2: We have a long way to go to get the uh, the distribution infrastructure. But We've got to keep at it unless we want to continue being dependent on petroleum forever.
0: Is that happening? Are we seeing more gas stations starting to offer E85 even within the Midwest? Because I, I, I'm i with these guys. I don't see them.
2: Yeah, I don't know that, uh, that issue probably as well as I ought to know it, you mm-hmm. know, how many of those are. I know there continues to be a program to push it, and uh, I think a lot of stimulus money went into that. I don't know the the details.
3: I think it's a chicken and egg kind of situation here. The the gas station owner doesn't necessarily want to put the investment in to have the new tanks, which they need new tanks for these kind of things. It's expensive expensive, uh, when they don't necessarily see the vehicles out on the marketplace. And the Detroit automakers have made a commitment to have half of their vehicles in the U.S. that they're making uh, by 2012 be flex fuel capable. Uh, But nevertheless, the foreign automakers necessarily are at that same threshold. And And so, who's gonna move first and who's gonna be driving the demand for E85, which customers don't seem to be clamoring for at this point in time.
1: Well, and to that point, point, Tim, what is the incentive for automakers to continue building flex fuel vehicles when I think we all kind of know that there there was a CAFE credit in there for everyone that you built and it helped these, uh, especially Detroit being truck heavy, automakers meet their CAFE numbers. Well, the new cafe that's, under, that's proposed right now and, and under comment and but it's pretty much a done deal, they're gonna phase out in 2019. What's the motivation for them to continue building them? Well, it's the same motivation
2: that we've had always is to try to diversify our fuel supply, and mm-hmm. our fuel source. And, and for the same reasons as, as uh, always, even though uh, you know, the, the immediate pressure is to off a little bit Uh, We can't continue to be so dependent on petroleum as we have been for decades and decades. We just can't keep going down that path. And, of
0: course, it's difficult when the price of gasoline, as it currently is right this moment, keeps going down. And we're at about two and a half bucks a gallon if you could put gasoline at four bucks a gallon and let's just say E85 at three bucks a gallon, people would be falling all over themselves trying to get that E85 in their car. And isn't that still one of the big issues that ethanol faces? And any, really, any alternative fuel faces is that oil is uh, uh, at maybe not all-time record lows right now, but it's a whole
2: lot cheaper than everybody thought it would be at this point in time. One of the reasons we have cheap oil right now is because we have a recession brought on in part because of a spike in oil prices. We've always had recessions after a spike in oil. This is going to be many decades, decades to get out of this. And there aren't any easy answers, and it's going to take time. So we have to keep pushing forward with the real alternatives to, to, uh, to petroleum. Ethanol is one of a very few alternatives to do that. So all the things that you brought up are right, all the, the concerns. So what? We, we need to keep pushing forward, unless we want to keep doing this year after year, decade after decade. I don't want to do that.
3: One of the trends right now is the discussion about battery-powered vehicles. General Motors plans to have its Chevrolet Volt in the marketplace by next year. Um, several other automakers are talking about similar plug-in technology uh, that will be hitting the roads in the next few years or so. Uh, those are great for city driving. Those are great for if you only have to go 40 miles or so in your, your average commute. But what about uh, What about going long distances? Is that where ethanol might be fitting into the uh, the picture?
2: Yes, I think that in fact, uh, as far as i 'm concerned, the best of all possible worlds is a battery electric vehicle. this is the ideal down the, down the road is a battery electric vehicle or a hybrid uh, with a like the volt with a small um, uh, biofuel powered gas tank and renewable electricity to drive the rest. Uh, I hope to get a volt. We'll see if I can afford one. Okay, that, that's the other issue, of course, is that uh, for a while, just like ethanol, the ethanol price, until you get the experience up and the, you can drive down the unit cost of production, they're going to be fairly expensive. Just, just the way it is. We learn to make things cheaper, ethanol and battery electric vehicles, by making a lot of them
0: with the cellulosic ethanol, the, the dozen or so plants that you talked about that are going into production very shortly, right. what's their feedstock? Because one of the things that we've always talked about is it could, could be switchgrass, it could be wood chips, it could even be garbage. In fact, I know uh, some studies have suggested that maybe half of everything that goes into a, uh, a landfill might be material for cellulosic ethanol.
2: That's right, Well, literally everything. Uh, Muscoma's plant in the Upper Peninsula is mixed hardwood chips. Coscada is making heavy use of, I understand, of uh, municipal solid waste. plant by a company called Poet out in Embersburg, Iowa, is using corn cobs. Okay? Down in the south, it's energy grasses, some, some grasses and uh, sugarcane residue. So it's literally whatever plant material is abundant and relatively inexpensive wherever you are. What about switchgrass? Because about five years ago, everybody is
0: crazy about
2: switchgrass, and now that's sort of dropped off uh, the radar screen. No, it hasn't dropped off the researchers' radar stream. It's dropped off the media's radar stream because the media can't keep track of, can't, can't maintain a focus <laughs> on anything for, sorry, poking you, I poking plead you guys guilty. back. Go ahead, okay. yeah, go ahead. <laughs> no, that, that's actually, that's uh, moving along very well, and, and switchgrass continues to be one of the favorite raw materials. Doc, my friend, Dr. Kurt Thalen, Michigan State University's, uh, developing v- improved varieties of switchgrass for here in Michigan. Other places are doing the same thing. I always like that idea because it's a perennial plant, yes. so you don't have to go plow the fields every year.
0: Right. Uh, they're native grasses, right? So you don't need nearly as much irrigation, herbicides, or pesticides. I mean, I, I would think that the corn farmers would switch to switchgrass
2: as soon as this stuff gets, all, all the, the kinks are ironed out. Well, again, that's another chicken and egg problem. It, it's a ch- problem we have to solve, but the farmers, farmers like annual crops so they can change their planting decisions based on what's, what's going to be good next year. If you're going to ask them to commit an acre or 100 acres to switchgrass, they're going on a long-term contract. The person to offer that long-term contract is the biofuel facility. Well, you have to build the biofuel facility. So there's, we have a lot to do to build up this infrastructure. There's a whole lot to be done. And so we have to keep focused. We just have to keep moving forward.
3: How long does it take to to switch over a field that's been doing uh, commercial crops to switchgrass? A a couple of years. You can't just do it overnight.
2: That's right. You don't get a harvestable crop until about two years after you've planted the switchgrass. It has to grow up and get the root system established, spread a bit, and then you can harvest it in about two years. But after that, it's like mowing the lawn every week, isn't
0: it? I mean, you you don't have to get one crop out per season. Uh, They will
2: probably, in Michigan, will probably harvest it once per year in the fall, the late fall. Okay, but in other sunnier climes, it, it might be more than that? Maybe, maybe two. Okay. But, but it's all right. You still get the, actually get your almost your maximum production and, and your maximum stand life by harvesting it just once. So if the farmer, you know, plant it and walk away, you know, spend more time in Florida. Uh, but, <laughs>
3: but it seems like we're hearing some more debate from folks worried that if we, if we turn to corn for ethanol, we turn to some of these other crops for ethanol, that, that we're gonna to start to see new farming in parts of the world that maybe farming of these kind of varieties shouldn't be taking place and it'll kind of create more pollution than it's, than it's saving. Is that, what do, you, what do you think of this debate?
2: Well, uh, I think the, again, and I'll, I'll poke my friends in the media a little bit here, the question is what's your alternative, okay? So if you don't plant something for biofuel, what are you gonna use for your fuel ex- instead? And uh, I wish, as a country, we could start making some comparisons. And you folks need to help us do that, folks. So the alternative right now in the United States, where we're getting, for example, our incremental barrel of fuel, either we're getting it from ethanol or we're getting it from the Canadian tar sands, which happen to be an environmental nightmare. Okay? In the rest of those countries, if they don't grow their own fuel, they, they, they have the alternative of importing it from our friends in Saudi Arabia okay, or nothing. Okay, that's, that's, those are the two alternatives. So, yeah, there's problems. I mean, we have to deal with potential pollution. But it's not, it's not like there's some ideal, uh, perfect fuel out there that is the alternative. Ethanol. The alternative right now is gasoline. And increasingly, it's gasoline or diesel made from really environmentally bad areas and from some of the worst places politically on the planet. That's our
1: alternative. Aren't there steps that you can take, or are there steps that you can take to um, to help uh, educate people, uh, you know, f- farmers in, in in less developed countries, uh, ways to improve their yields and things like that, to maybe take a little bit of that uh, food for fuel debate off the table? That's right. For places, example
2: like Malawi, uh, which has very a lot of very good land their average corn yield is about 35 bushels per acre, where ours is over 150 bushels per acre. It's a fourfold increase you can think about uh, just by having ac- better access to uh, better seed varieties and more fertilizer, more inputs and better management practices. So I really don't think the food versus, food versus fuel argument really holds up when you look at it. The crime against humanity, if there is one, is that crop yields are so low in so, mu- so much of the world. What about water, though? I, my understanding is it takes a
0: lot of water to make ethanol, and a lot of uh, environmentalists have complained about it
2: going with ethanol for that very reason. Yeah, and, and that's why I asked, what is your comparison? Okay. Uh, it takes about, there's two places water gets used to make fuels. One is the processing facility. In other words, the biorefinery, the corn place, or the oil refinery. In those cases, they're about similar. It's about three or four gallons per gallon of ethanol in a modern corn refinery. It's so a bit more for that in the modern oil refinery. So the issue is... What do they use water for to make gasoline? They use it in, in cooling towers, the whole heat transfer issue. So those big steam clouds you see coming off, that's, gotcha. the, wa- that's okay. the water that they use. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, so the only other places we're talking about water is the water that f- falls. So if it's not irrigation, okay, unless it's irrigated, it's water that comes down as... Uh, as rainfall or snow. Just exactly what is the problem with having plants use water? That's, their, <laughs> that's what they do in the ecosystem. That's how plants take water, they give us oxygen and cycle the CO2. What is the problem with that? And that's an amazing statistic. You say
0: it actually takes a slightly more water to make a gallon of gasoline than a gallon of ethanol? That's correct. That I did not know. Yeah. Didn't but realize each, how much water went into making gasoline. A lot of it.
1: It, it, that kind of gets back to the process of making it. Is, is there a process that you see, without, without getting too in depth, um, uh, that may emerge as, as the way to go? I think Mascoma uses a, uses a process, uh, a sort of one step process, they equate to, to making beer. Right. Uh, and, and whereas Cascada, another company I'm familiar with, they use, they use some bugs that, that chew up the, the, the cellulose and, and excrete ethanol.
0: And, unfortunately, we're going to need a quick answer on this. Let be very quick.
2: There's, there's two basic ways to make the ethanol, what's called the thermal platform, where you basically heat up the biomass and destroy it down to carbon monoxide and hydrogen. Then you build that up into a fuel. I think that will be used mostly for woody materials and some municipal waste. The other is the biochemical platform where we make sugars and then ferment the sugars. I think they'll be used, those two processes will probably both be used and they'll be used for different raw materials. One for the woody materials, the biochemical probably for the grasses and crop residues. With that, we're going to have to wrap up this discussion, but I want to leave the cameras rolling
0: because I had a few more questions that I want to ask uh, the good professor here, but Professor Bruce Dale from Michigan State, great for having you here on AutoLine Detroit with us. Tim Higgins, great having you here too. James Amon, great having you here, and I'll be back in a moment with some closing thoughts. Well, like we always do, we've got more of our interview with Professor Bruce Dale on our website at AutoLineDetroit.tv. You can also watch AutoLine daily there. It's a seven-minute webcast that covers the latest news that's coming out in the industry, no matter where that news is happening. Or you can even sign up for our free newsletter and have it emailed to you every day. And then on Thursday nights, we do the first live weekly webcast that's ever been done in the auto industry to get the the behind-the-scenes information of what's going on, the kind of stuff that typically is off the record. Highly opinionated with blunt commentary, we call it AutoLine After Hours. But that wraps up this show. For all of us here at AutoLine Detroit, thanks for watching. We'll see you right here next week.